You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. (laughs) Well, we're beginning to get into summer. It's Memorial Day weekend, and I have been having such a good time um, enjoying, you know, a little bit of the break, right? It's been like rainy, and then it'll get really hot, and it's, you know, it's, it's, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting, it's starting to feel a little bit like summer. Um, Had a good time. Lit Brothers were out and about. We had a great little happy hour at El Rey, which was fun. Um, but you, you know, let me say this about El Rey. I think because it was raining on Friday, it wasn't super, 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 super packed. But when I know there are crowded, like super, super crowded restaurants that are known for their, you know, uh, happy hours where it's packed, I try to get a reservation. Um, and I do, I do. So we did have a reservation. We was missing one. Uh, lit brother Josh, who Josh eats Philly, he was out in LA, um, living it up, having great looking pizza, and he went to In and Out Burger, which is In and Out. <laughs> I wonder how he feels about having it there. I mean, I've had it, you know, before. They've put some In and Outs all throughout Texas, which is interesting. But I always wonder what it's like to have it the original place, what he thinks about it. So I'm, 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 you know, I was looking through, you know, the Instagram page, you know, seeing everything. I wonder if he was getting FOMO, um, at all the stuff that was going down this week for influencer world, which I am going to be talking about influencers in, a, in an interesting way later on this episode. But I, I, I'm wondering, like, how does he feel about uh, what was going on this week. There was lots of openings and events, like assembly. You all saw me. I was, you know, in my, you know, hoochie daddy shorts, you know, with Jamarcus. And we was just, you know, having a good time. My girl, Laura, we was all dressed up. We was, it, we was giving summer waves. We are giving y'all a preview. So there was this place called The Grove at assembly. And that party, oh my God. Oh my God. It was a real party. That was a real party. That was probably one of the littest, like, event parties I've been to in a while. Like as far as preview. They had every they had fire dancers. They had oh my goodness. Jazz, live musicians, um performing. It was all on a rooftop that was stretched out wide. Oysters galore. Tons of cocktails. Frozen cocktails, shaking cocktails, stiff cocktails, martini glasses, coupe glasses. It was it was glamorous and it was fun. Everybody was there. It was super, super, you know, on point. Very great event. Punch Media um, hosted it, but it was called The Grove. And we were dressed appropriately. It was like this tropical Hawaiian theme. And so we came in looking like we was going to the beach. And I was happy that there were people on theme because some folks came and I was like, this is the wrong look. Why are we wearing brown suits? Anyway, um, <laughs> it was it was a good time. Um, I had a really good time. The food was incredible. But Nonetheless, I was wondering while we were over here, you know, pretending that there was like a groove. I wonder how Josh was in L.A. because it was like sunny out there, you know, and everything like that. So it was fun. I was looking at some of the the pictures and things. But, you know, we'll be back at it for Pride Month. okay, for June. And we're going to just take over the town. It's not going to just be a monthly happy hour. It's going to be parties with us all, all, all damn weekend. It's going to be a good old time. A good old gay month. 
June. I'm looking forward to Pride Month. Mixed thoughts. Talk about that in a bit. But um, yeah, Memorial Day. One of the good things I'll say is that like, I'm so happy I, I, I've now kind of gotten older and I've gotten in the mix and swing. I know people that are having cookouts and I can go to cookouts and not have to cook. Oh, such a such a great thing to have. So my lawyer lives out in um, East Oak Lane and he's having a cookout and I am going to be there like swimwear. And uh, Mr. Johnson is coming with that lavender lemonade because that's what we bring to the table. We don't bring food. No, 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 no. We bring liquor. We bring cocktails. We bring lavender lemonade. So we're going to be bringing that lovely lavender lemonade and it's going to be a good time. Yes, that feels like summer to me. That feels like Memorial Day weekend to me is lavender lemonade with good, a person who can actually grill. Okay, because some people don't grill, they kill. They kill the food. They don't grill the food, they kill the food. You know what I'm talking about? Those torch flamers that just want to be behind something flipping. My lawyer don't do that. He he flips and he knows how to get the heat even and make sure there's that nice you know charcoal hit, but he don't play games. You know, so I love last minute cookout invites, especially given everything that's going on in the world today. Um, I love to be able to, you know, go places where, you know, I, I can trust their food because I don't eat everybody's food. Let me be very clear. I, I can't eat everybody's food. But there's some people where I like, I know you. You're super clean. You, 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 you got kids and you're smart and you know how to sanitize. You know, there's a there's a woman in that house that that, that has the, the eye, the keen eye. Like, it's just. You know, you just can't eat everybody's house. But some people I can. There's some people I'm like, yes, of course I'll eat here. This is spotless. You know how to host. A lot of people don't know how to host. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going around the book. I know you all have been hearing some things, might have seen some things. Um, but there are some great things going on with the book. But I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Let this let this pan out a little bit before I get real, real, real chatty. Um, but there's some great news coming from the book and some things that you was asking for. And I finally can be able to formally announce it very soon. But we're getting close and I'll, I'm excited. Yes, but there's some stuff that is coming. More and more things as we get down to the countdown. Okay, we have just passed. We're eight months away. We're eight months away to the case for council culture, and the anticipation is is going, is building. Um, I I have a book publicist now um, outside of my book agent. Um, of course, I have a speaking agent, but I also now have a book publicist, and I have a book agent, and I have a whole marketing team that's connected with the publisher. That is that that we had a whole meeting this week talking about how to market the book and ideas for visuals and graphics and cool swag and things. So all that's coming in June, which is like literally next week. So stuff is coming down the pipeline. It's a great vibe. I'm feeling good. It's just exciting time. I'm really, really excited about this book. And I'm excited about the enthusiasm that you all have had. Sales, pre-sales and pre-orders have been going great. Um, For a book to to have this much of a red carpet rollout, the amount of sales and a consistent word of mouth and buzz has been phenomenal. And that's great because that means that we're, we're really doing a damn thing. And I, and I just love that from now until February 21st, 2023, we'll be having this journey together. So I'm, I'm happy to be on this side of it because writing the book was a journey within itself. Like last year, around this time last year, the contract had already been signed. 
I was like in the throes of outlines and writing and researching and doing interviews and getting sources. You all remember this, right? Around this time, I was asking people uh, to, to sign up to, you know, potentially be interviewed for the book if you had expertise around the topic, which some of you all took advantage of the opportunity and some of you all in the book. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so it, it's, it's exciting to see um, how this this is going to continue to go. And, you know, we get to August and there will there will be preview copies for selected people to be able to read the book in advance. Um, but those are like people who are like, you know, big book fans, folks that are of, of um, you know, standing in the literary world and, you know, media, some media. But it's going to be interesting. So I get to choose who gets to read the book before it comes out. And and those copies will be coming out in August, like six months before the book will come out. And it's it's exciting. Like this summer is just been, it's going to be lit. I'm, I'm looking forward to the summer. Yes. And I'm going to be cool for the summer, as the, as the kids say. Um, so, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, for the most part, you know, keeping myself afloat, getting ready for these cookouts, trying to unwind and unpack. Right. A lot has happened this week. Um, you know, there was a shooting in Texas, a Uvalde shooting, the shooting, 19 kids killed, uh, two adults, teachers, 21 killed um, in a mass shooting, second largest school shooting um, in American history. Uh, Sandy Hook, I believe, I think, or Stungall, one of them, definitely in that top tier. Uh, of school shootings. When I think about, uh, you know, Sandy Hook, I think about the others. But uh, this is the second largest uh, school shooting in American history that happened this past weekend. And this is also coming off of the hills of what took place in Buffalo when, what, 10 black, mostly black people were killed, elders at a grocery store that was in a food desert. Um, you know, I, I, I it's, it's just complicated, right? I don't know. I, I thoughts and prayers. It's just does. Is this useless word to say? Um, it's just pointless because it's just redundant. It's like when I hear people, you know, when racial uprisings happen, people say, "Oh my goodness, the world is this is what this is crazy." You know, when they hear about racial when police, you know, killings, right? Of of um, of unarmed black people and and people say things like oh that's crazy oh my goodness that's horrific or you know or they'll ask some stupid question like when will the when will the racism stop and it's like white people ask that question um it's yeah i'm just i i you know it's it's annoying because i think people are starting to wake up or at least they're pretending to wake up right and there's become more nuanced conversations about policing, about the patterns, about race. And, you know, there's been even more conversations that have been interesting. So, uh, goodness, where do I start? I, I think for me, I'll just start with the simple. You know, there's this conversation about gun control and... We're just not getting anywhere with gun control. Uh, it's just not happening, right? Canada is doing something, right? Their prime minister, Justin, uh, you know, the one who did the brown face back in the day, he uh, has banned some major assault weapons, right? Other countries get it, right? We just don't. And it's not about 
Second Amendment rights. I mean, that's bullshit. It's about power. It's about, you know, this identity that a certain subset of the population have. White people, white angry men, and the white women who enable them, right? This is about maintaining a certain power. And I'm connecting the dots between um, reproductive rights, right? The conversation around, you know, people trying to kill Roe versus Wade and also look at this gun control thing. And I know this is going to sound dark and gloomy, but guess what? It's the fucking truth. White supremacists, right? Whether they're in politics or whether they're somewhere in their backyard, they are scared. They are frightened by the growth of of black and brown people in this country. They know that in the next, what, 10 or so years, the population in America, where it's going, will be majority of color, right? That there'll be a majority of black and brown people in this country compared to them. That scares them, okay? Because either, or whether or not, right, the individuals in question will be able to vote or are considered U.S. citizens, whether or not they will, will, even though at that point we'll probably be even closer to an apartheid state where the majority of people who look like the country don't have the power. Because that's really what's going on. Like white people will still maintain political power. A lot of them are. But they're seeing the browning and the tanning of this country. And they are scared. They are scared because they live with the fear because of their, you know, colonialist, imperialistic views that what they've done to us, we will do to them. Even though history has shown that that has not been the case. Like there has never been this massive collective global black supremacy that has put white people in shambles in slavery. That's just not how it's been. That's not how we get down. That's just not the story, right? But they fear that when they're outnumbered, that they will be able to experience the marginalization that we faced. And they fear that they won't have a say. And they are scared as hell, right? Because when Obama became president, they knew what that represented. They're seeing a lot of interracial dating. They're seeing interracial childbirth. They're seeing a lot of this culture where white people are not dating white people, right? They're seeing this cultural exchange where hip hop is the most popular, you know, um, music genre right now, right? They're seeing this conversations about race in the schools, right? And even though it's not as extreme as they're making it, right? Like critical race theory is not being taught in elementary schools. It's just not happening, right? They see that this country is getting browner. They see folks getting more aware and they're seeing the younger generations wake up and see. And they are feeling like they're going to lose this country. That they stole. Because let's be clear, they didn't own it. They didn't start it. They, they stole it, right? So now a group of people are taking it the fuck back. And they fear that that's happening because of the population density, right? So keeping that in mind, right? Because there's this conversation about the great replacement theory. This is what this is about, is that essentially they see this changing. And what is happening, which is, I'm not saying this is connected to the shooter, but I'm just seeing the conversations around gun control. When you're looking at the way that the conversations are, why are they so 
obsessed with trying to control women's bodies. They're really obsessed with trying to control white women's bodies. Because in their mind, if white women are having abortions, that's one less white male that can go set forth in the world. That with this large increase of women having abortions, whether it's, it's not about black and brown. They don't care about them. They really don't, right? Because for many years, it was like, eh, whatever. They don't care. But they're seeing that consistently white women in rural areas and other areas are partaking in abortion. And this is not about moral beliefs and faith. I mean, there is always that intersection. But they're thinking to themselves, part of the reason why population growth is not happening for white people in the way and race that others are is because white women have the luxury and opportunity to have abortions. And they're thinking about those poor rural white women that are not breeding out as many white children to populate the country. So to them, they're scared about that. They're scared that the numbers are showing that there is an increase in this department compared to them. And that when these things are happening, there is also interracial dating where they don't consider those kids white. They don't consider, once these, these parents, they're seeing the trends, y'all. They hate it. They hate it. The data is showing it. They're seeing this shrinkage and a reduction. They're not growing as fast in the population compared to black and brown people as a whole. So they are trying to find ways to stop abortions because if they are forcing it, that's why they're so extreme. Like if you notice how extreme they are, they're not making exceptions. They're like, I don't care if it's rape, incest. We got to have more white babies out here. I don't care if they're born from cousins or from, from rape or from anything. They don't care because they really want to push those babies. And that will keep the, the population, you know, at a number. This is a numbers game. It's like elections with electoral votes. How many, you know, Republicans assess things in numbers. Democrats assess things on popular opinion. That's the difference between the Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are looking at numbers. They're looking at votes. They're whipping them. Democrats don't do that. They look at the, the, the consensus, the feel, the mood of things. That's why they struggle sometimes. They win cultural wars, right? Democrats win cultural wars, but they don't win fucking seats often sometimes. They struggle with that. Republicans don't care about public opinion. They don't care about a lot of that shit. They just say, can we get the numbers? Can we win a state? Can we win a seat? So there's a different attitude. They're more quantitative. Um, Democrats are more qualitative. For better or for worse, right? And in some ways, it is for the better, right? Because they do see the humanity, or at least they see civil rights in this, or human rights sometimes. But, you know, po politically, it is a number game a lot of time. A lot of the time. So they're looking at this, these numbers. And that's why they're going hard. They've been going hard, but they're, they're realizing we're, we're not going hard enough. So they're going, they're double downing on their white supremacy because there was a, at one point in time, I think they had the idea that we could do this incremental. We could, we could, we could pretend we like people of color, but still do a little bit of subtle racism because we still hold the majority. But that majority is eroding and it's eroding fast. And they're realizing that they have really let go of the massiveness of their conservativeness. They, they, they're really doubling down on their white supremacy and they're not taking any exceptions. They're not even faking it anymore because they know that if they don't get what they need right now, they're going to lose it all. It's going to happen. I mean, they can't fight. It's going to happen. They're going to lose anyway. They will lose in the end. Love will conquer all. But that's not the point. 
The reality is, is that that's where they are with that. Now with the guns, that is connected to that because they see that the police state, right, has been killing, actively killing black and brown people disproportionately. They need to have the police state because as they're trying to repopulate the country with white people, right, they also need to invest in systems that are killing black and brown people that are continuing to climb up the population. So they have to keep these numbers down while also keeping their numbers up. So you have to, in order to do that, and this is a this is very dark, y'all, but it's time to have that conversation. Tell a friend, because let's be really clear what's happening here. Because a lot of y'all listening are like, oh, holy shit. Yes, we're here. We're here. I fucking see it. And if you don't fucking see it, open your fucking eyes. Because it's very clear what's happening here. They're like, in, in in one aspect, right, they are like, look, we have to have, you know, we want to get rid of Planned Parenthood. We have to make sure that white people, white women are not having abortions so they can continue to repopulate, right? So they're pushing that heavy. As they continue to do that, if they're increasing white birth, if, at least strategically in their head, if they're pushing white birth, white childbirth through this very dirty reductionist practice, then they also have to then come to the mindset of how do we decrease the population of black and brown people? They have to suppress the voting rights. So the policies that would, would, would be in their favor, that would go against their favor stops. So they have to push voter suppression laws. That's why you've seen a lot of voter suppression laws because the more and more black people are eligible to vote, the more and more black and brown people collectively are going to the polls in areas, they can change the outcome of the election, which means that they can help throw back political policies that go against this, right? So they're, they're pushing voter suppression laws. So that's helping them win this fight. But then they're also saying, we need to keep police militias. We need to keep guns and armed guns. We need to, you know, set back gun laws because they know that that allows people to do hate crimes. That allows the police to, quote unquote, defend themselves. They, they're letting people do it. And it's something to be said that if you look at that school in Texas, it was predominantly Hispanic kids that died. They're in Texas near that damn border. You don't think that the cops... Right, which we'll get to them in a minute, that could have saved those kids, did they did not? That's by design. If there are white kids in there, they would have been running in there, bullets and all. One shooter? And you mean to tell me that all these officers, what training, school trainings? If if schools are having trainings for shootings, don't police? They did not do a damn thing. 80 minutes. They could have saved those kids. They did not save those kids. That was a choice. And it's very interesting if we're looking at how these mass shootings are taking place. Yes, do they happen at schools like Sandy Hook with white children? Yes, they do. And it's unfortunate. But they're also happening at places of worship. Like in California, we saw what was happening there. You look at what's going on you know, at Buffalo. These are race-related they may not be directly, but they are connected. The people who are the victims of these recent shootings have been of color. And gun control laws would stop that from happening, right? That will, It would stop some of it. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm past this policy. I'm, I want to take the gun manufacturers to court. I want gun manufacturers to be held responsible. Because at the end of the day, they're a business. And the product they're selling is killing us. 
So where is the regulation with the gun manufacturers? That's where I stand. We're not talking about gun manufacturers that we're not having a real conversation about this shit. I just want to keep it 100. We're, we're not having a real conversation about gun control or any of this shit if we're not talking about gun manufacturers. That's one. That's one. But back to this, this shit, this great replacement theory. They're, they're thinking to suppress voter rights because that will also impact. And they're really intentional supporting suppressing the voter rights of black and brown people in these communities. That's part of it. Second is the perpetuation of guns. Because as long as there are guns out here, the more and more that it can create guns in urban communities where there's lots of poverty, where you're seeing a lot of black and brown people being killed in their own communities. The guns play a role in helping to erode whatever gains are made. It's just not happening fast enough. And they're, they're hating it, right? Because when you're looking at the gun violence, gun violence is a racial justice issue. Of course, they're not going to give a fuck about gun violence because it is killing mostly black and brown people, specifically black people in their communities and everywhere else, right? The perpetuation of ghost guns, ghost manufacturers, it is a business and they're benefiting off of it. They enjoy the fact that this, this gun violence is happening in Chicago. It's happening in Philadelphia. You're stripping away resources from communities. You're putting them in desperation and you're putting guns out afloat. Ghost guns being pushed through manufacturers that are off the top white-owned manufacturers. They know what's happening. They see the numbers and they like it. They love it. They don't want to stop this because it's doing the work that they need to do. The police is working in their favor. The police is disproportionately killing black and brown people. They want that population to go down. The, the guns, the massive guns that are being out here in these streets, they love that shit because it's hurting them. The, the crazy part is, is that they run off of this lawlessness, right? But we're not seeing this level of black people with guns killing white people in mass. It's just not happening. They don't, they know that. Like, th this is all connected to poverty. Areas with high poverty are areas with the most gun violence, with the, the least voter turnout. That is designed. That's what they want. No voter participation, no access to resources, and you have access to guns and you're killing each other. And they love it. And the thing is, is that it's not. The crazy part is they play into this pathology of black on black crime, but that's not really the point, right? The reality is that if you put, if you had a white town that had no resources and you literally stripped them of voting access or, or a, a situation where they have low voter turnout and you gave them a bunch of guns, the same shit would happen. But the government, right, protects white people in ways that they don't protect black and brown people. They don't, right? You, you're never going to hear about mass shootings carried out by white people or by black people coming into Rittenhouse. Like, black people are not going into Rittenhouse shooting up Rittenhouse. There's a reason why. And, and, and people don't take the time to really take a step back and look at what's happening. Because, see, at this point, right, black sociologists, those who are studying race, really understanding ethnicity, understanding the social geopolitical fuckery that's been happening in America... We have seen this come, been coming for a long time. I have been really watching patterns for several years, especially starting in 2016 with Trump's rise. This has been in, de in, in design. This has been in effect. And now we're at 2022, and I think a lot of everyday people are starting to wake up and say, okay, what the fuck is really going on? 
Because this shit's not making any sense. And they're starting to realize everything they've been told isn't adding up. They're starting to realize that the police lie, right? But I thought we talked about that two years ago, which we'll get back to that in a minute. They've been lying. And we I've known that since the day I was born. But some people have to find out the hard way, right? And so they're seeing what happened at the school. And they're saying, I don't get it. Come the fuck on. Take a moment. Stop believing in the best of people. And start really looking at what the fuck it is. They're telling you what it is. They're lying. Stop believing police when they tell you something. Stop believing these press releases. Stop buying into these press conferences. Understand that police have to be verified like everybody else. And local media ought to be ashamed of itself. Yes, I'm calling local media out. Because a lot of times they act like, oh, we got a police report. As if that's going to tell them everything they need to know about the case. And they can just move on. They don't ever verify it. They just go, oh, police said this. We, we got our story. So they run on the news. And they think that shit is fucking cute. And it has been fucking with us since the beginning of television. Local news, right? Local television news, right? They run this stuff. And they think that this is cool. Oh, we're just going to show crime. And what the police say. And they just really run off this shit as if police do not lie. And then every time the police lie, which is very often, nobody ever goes and correct the record. Nobody ever goes back on TV and say, hey, hey, they actually lied about this, right? And we're seeing this happen right now. So now rather than the news say police lied, they're saying, oh, there's changing timelines. Fuck out of here. It's not a changing timeline. They lied. They lied. They could have written at school. They had the calls. They had the information. Why didn't they do it? How the fuck are they scared? You know what's crazy is that police will go, oh my goodness, I was scared of my life. That's why I shot that black man. But then be like, oh, there's a shooter shooting other people. I was scared of my life. That's why I didn't go to save them. What? What is that? What is that? What, is, what, what does that mean? What does that say? One fucking shooter and you had a barrage of cops. What are you talking about? So you just let a bunch of, you let 21 people get killed. You let 19 children die because of what? Bullshit. Like I tell you, the math is not mathing for a reason. It's by design. Stop acting like this shit is a coincidence. Stop acting like this shit is an accident. Stop acting like people don't know what they're doing. Stop saying, oh my God, you know, people just ignorant to the facts. No, they're choosing. They're woefully woefully ignorant they are willing participants in ignorance they choose this this is what they want this is what they're doing people want to say the word cowards oh you're so fucking nice they're co-conspirators they're not cowards they're co-conspirators this is a this is this is how white supremacy works and i'm tired of all this fuckery and all this this light language racially it's racist and, and guess what? You can act like, oh, Ernest is the angry, black, cranky man that just thinks everything's about race. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you don't get it. I'm sorry that you don't want it to be that way because it doesn't make you feel good or makes you uncomfortable. Well, get uncomfortable because we all should. We really should. This is unacceptable. So here's the thing that's been really interesting about these conversations. And this is how you know that there's a lot of racial bias or racism in how we talk about this. I tell people that when we talk about mass shootings, right, we are all automatically sympathetic. We go thoughts and prayers. We get emotional. We talk about gun control. 
But when we talk about gun violence, the energy is not the same. And I know exactly why the fuck it isn't. Because gun violence disproportionately impacts black people, right? More black people, black men specifically, are more likely to die from gun violence than their white peers, okay? So in a world where we talk about Texas and guns and all that shit, it's, it's the black people that are dying. It's the black men that are dying disproportionately from gun violence. It's connected to poverty. It's connected to a lot of socioeconomic strife. And this is something that has been happening forever, right? And it's gotten worse, right? It's, it's, we know we can look at a population, we can look at an area, we can look at a zip code, and we can automatically know what the outcome is. That's how entrenched this is. That we can look at a zip code and say, a lot of black men are going to die here. I could go to zip codes in North Philly and say, there will be a disproportion of a black man that's going to die from gun violence here. Before I even look at it. Because I know poverty hotspots. I'll say, them right there, a lot of black men are going to die here. They're going to die. There's going to be more black men that die at 19139 than 19102. Bets. Don't even have to have a magic wand. That's how curated and designed we know. It's so there. It's not even like a boom. It's like a you can point to a zip code and say they're going to die here. They're not going to die here. If you live here, you're safer. If you don't, you won't. If your kid goes to school in this zip code, they're going to likely fail. Like it's it's by design. And I think that's the crazy part. And everybody wants to talk about solutions. The solutions are there, too. The solutions are there. They've been there. Right? Why are we treating gun violence in Philadelphia like it's a citywide problem? Stop it. Stop with the lies. It's not a citywide problem. It's a citywide concern, but it's not a citywide problem. There are particular areas in Philly that is being hit the hardest. And those areas need to be given attention. But the problem is everyone wants to treat this like it's got to be in every zip code. No, it does not. We do not need to be doing giving the same amount of money to 19102 that we give to 19139. We should not be doing that. We should not be giving the same amount of money evenly when we know others are suffering far worse. We have to reallocate these resources differently. We have to stop acting like one little incident in Rittenhouse means that we need to put a thousand things suit. Like, is this the way that we treat white anger or pain compared to black agony, right? It's almost like people expect black people to be going through shit. I wonder why. They like expect that to be. It's common. Oh, of course there's there's problems in North Philly with black people. Yeah, of course it is. And we accept that, right? We just treat that like that's normal. We're like, yeah, of course there's that the violence there. Oh, goodness, of course. Yeah, you know, but for it to happen in Old City, oh my God. The fact that we react like that means that we're okay with black people being fucked over in those impoverished environments. And that, you know, Kensington, right? We talk about Kensington. Oh, of course, Kensington. Why is this, why is it an okay, oh, of course, Kensington? Like, why is it like, yeah, of course, Kensington. Why do we just simply pass that off and think that's okay? And our legislators and our government do too. And that level of, of, of comfort with that inequity that white people have largely is why we're where we're at because they're okay. They're comfortable with that shit. They're comfortable with being like, yeah, they're, you know, even though they hold the privilege and the resources, let's be clear politically, they, the nonprofit spaces, all of that, right. They control those resources and they just say, oh, you know, okay. 
And like I said before, until it happens to one of their kids. Until it happens to one of their kids, until it happens to someone they know, until it hurts their profit margin, that's when they'll give a fuck. History has shown that. White people don't care collectively until it impacts them in a certain way. They just won't do it until it impacts them in a certain way. Oh, I have so much to say about this next topic, but it's going to bleed into it. When I think about all of the things right around gun violence and gun control and people say, will there be change this time? I think about where we were two years ago. It's something to be said that around these shootings was also the two year anniversary of the death of George Floyd, a black man who was killed, murdered, murdered, because now that those killers have been convicted and charged, charged and convicted. Those George Floyd was murdered by police two years ago. And the outcry, the video, the viralness of it, right, created this offspur of racial uprisings that, you know, shaped the way we had conversations about Black Lives Matter and these issues. Now I'm going to bring this back real quick. David Boardman, who is the dean of the Temple Klein School of Journalism and Communications, um, he has been telling people that he thinks it's time for people to see the casket, to see a visual like journalists, photojournalists to show a picture of a, you know, marred child of, that has died from a mass shooting, that there should be some picture, some jarring picture with bullet holes or something, uh, basically showing a dead body. Like they need to just show it. Um, and they think he thinks that that kind of powerful imagery will, will, will really, put shame and fear and, and, and do something. Oh, 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 Yeah. I say this critique with a lot of consideration and thought about that. You know, only a white person would, would propose something like that. It's just true. That when we talk about propelling people, who are we trying to propel? Because black people don't need to see it. Yeah, black and brown people don't need to see a dead body or on any imagery because those bodies are our kids, our cousins, our family members. We know what it's like to, to bury black and brown bodies from gun violence. We, we don't need to see the shit. But let's just say you're talking generally, but you need to be very specific. You're talking about white people. And here's the thing. At what cost do the trauma and a re-traumatization of black slain bodies or a child that was there, a Latino body, right? Is dead or found or, or shot or we put that on the cover that that propels people to wake up. Why do white people need to see that kind of carnage in order to feel propelled to give a fuck? You have to be a really sick, twisted person to feel like you need to see it in order to believe it when it comes to these types of issues. Like, the fact that it's disgusting and angering to me, because here's something I don't think, you know, no, I never have watched in full the George Floyd video. I've never watched, I never watched the whole video. I didn't need to watch it because I knew how it was going to end. And if you know how it's going to end and you know what happened, then that should compel you enough. But the fact that there are people who still believe that we need to see these videos, that we need to see this shit happen in order for to get a reaction. I think are people who don't fucking get it. That they know what's happening. They're okay with it. 
And the white people that care, right? Here's the real question. Do any of y'all need to see those videos? Yeah, I'm talking to you. I'm looking at some of y'all, right? White people I know, Kelly, Tom, Laura. Y'all need to see that video? No, you don't need to see it. You don't need to see it. I don't know any white person with any level of consciousness that need to see it, right? You don't need to see the video. Y'all keep talking on behalf of people. Who are y'all talking about that need to see it? Like, I wanted to ask David Borbett when I saw the, you know, Philly Magdalene story, we did a Q&A with him, interviewed him. I kept thinking to myself, who needs to see it? Who? Name it. Put a name on it. If we're going to be journalists and we're going to be media professionals in this industry, put a name on it. Because just saying it needs to be viewed. Uh, black people already see that. We, we already know. White people that fucking get it, right? The ones that say they get it or they know, they don't see it either. So who did you see it? The racists? The family that y'all left behind? The racist family that you left behind in your small town? You think that they care? They don't. Oh, baby, they don't care. They don't care. We talk about the, think about Emmett Till. Emmett Till, you know, that young black man who was lynched, right? Beaten. And the mother wanted the casket to be lifted. That was over, what, 60-something years ago. Maybe love fucking 70, it was years, like 60 something years ago, over 50 years ago, that, that Emmett Till's mother made that decision. It was on the front cover of Ebony, Black Magazine, front cover, and it showed this, 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 this shovel face, and she wanted the world to see it. That was because the way that we dealt with race and talked about it, we, we did things differently back then because we thought that there was a better hope. Well, after many, many years, and decades of black people showing images, right, and videos from Rodney King to Trayvon, well, not Trayvon, but to George Floyd and to, you know, Sandra Black, I mean, to all these videos and, and images and audios we've seen, it just doesn't ever change. It does not, it, it doesn't create a longer lasting change. If they don't get it now, they're not going to get it that way. And the reality is there are people I know who are like, yeah, that's unfortunate, but I still want my guns. They think that they're entitled to them. And what y'all got to understand is, is that you're not going to find common ground with these people. You have to literally just say, fuck your feelings. We're saying no. What happened to a culture where sometimes you just took something from somebody that he was bad. Like, what happened? You know, when parents see a kid doing something they shouldn't do, they don't sit up there and try to reason with them when they know the kid is being a hard ass and being stubborn. They just say, you're not going. And that's what I said. And that's final. When is someone going to be a parent in this situation? We're sitting over here trying to win hearts and minds with sociopaths. When are we ever going to get to a point where we just say, no, that's not happening. The end. We're canceling your contract today. Like, why can't we just do that? That's why I love the book, The Case for Council Culture. That's why I talk about the case for council culture. Because we have to cancel things. We have to say no. We have to say enough's a fucking enough. We just have to. We get so caught up in this shit trying to reconcile this and make sense of this and make sense of that. Sometimes you just have to say enough's a fucking enough and not have this whole, let's come to the table. Like I'm not having common ground with white supremacists. I'm not having common ground with people who think that people should just buy AK-47s without background checks. What are we talking about? Somebody has to be the adult. All of this, 
We got to do this to do this. I'm not persuading motherfuckers anything when it comes to mass shootings and gun violence. Like you all will sit up here and wait all day. What has worked? You have tried everything. Haven't we done this already? Did we already have seats at the table? Did we already have these kumbaya? Did we already have beers in backyards with cops? Did we already have this shit? Did we do all of this already? Like, did we already have these dialogues, these town halls, these meetings, these forums, these discussion groups, these focus groups? Did we do all this shit already? Why do we keep acting like this is new? We're going in circles. We're fucking insane. We're doing the same thing all over again. We've done this already. We've done it. The only thing you can do now is cancel it. Seriously, cancel these assault weapons. Cancel a lot of these fucking guns. It doesn't work. Sometimes you just have to cancel shit. You just have to say no. I'm taking it away from you. Look at what he did in Canada. Prime Minister of Canada just said we're banning this shit. Fuck it. I'm not about to act, talk to you all. It's an executive order. We're just going to take it. We're always conceding to white men's fragile masculinity and their fucking feelings. We keep finding a thousand ways to avoid the inevitable. Ban on assault weapons. Holding gun manufacturers accountable. It's that simple, people. Anything else is bullshit. It's, it's simple. It's fucking simple. It's all fucking simple. It's just people are trying to find a thousand ways to, to, to acquiesce to the, to the fucking emotions and the petty parties of our oppressors. And then we sit up here and we keep having these circular conversations. So I'm here to make it simple. These white supremacists that are in Congress and the Senate want black and brown populations to die. They are trying to populate, control the population. They're trying to regulate white women's bodies for the sake of making them reproduce so they can keep the majority because they're scared that by the time we get to 2030, 2040, that there will be a majority of color country and they cannot fucking live with that. That's what it is. That's what it's been. That's what it is. If they don't want to do anything about gun control, if they're not talking about gun manufacturers, if they're not talking about banning assault weapons, then everything else is a bunch of shit. That's just what it is. So now thinking about where we have been. Two years ago, everybody was acting like we just had to have, that the world was going to change the racial uprisings. You know, all of those street walks that had Black Lives Matter, they're fading. They're fading. They're fading. They're fading just like those promises around racial equity and equity. They're fading, people. Remember all those street walks that said Black Lives Matter, all those murals with George Floyd's legacy? They're all fading. They're crumbling. They're getting taken down. They're getting repainted over. They're just eroding with the times. They're not there. They're fading, just like people's consciousness about the topic, right? Did we win some people? Yeah. But white people went back to being white people, right? We look at that with Melissa DePino, what happened with her, and from privilege to progress. We look at, you know, some of these other Karens and folks around town that are doing what they do. White people went back to being white people once they got to go back outside. Once they were not in the house, 
reading and watching documentaries and donating their money and feeling helpless. They went back to their fuckery. In large, in mass, right? They did. They did. They did. Because the reality is that it's been about power, about the comfort, right? They realized, I don't want to give this up. To be white, to be white in America, to have, you know, the world prioritize me, to to feel like a first-class citizen, to feel like what I say matters, the fact that I can yell and know that they're going to pay attention to me because of who I am. They revel in that shit. They didn't want to let that shit go so fast, right? Like They didn't want to let go of those benefits. There are benefits to being white in America. They didn't want to just surrender those. They know it's wrong. They have the guilt. Trust me, they know. They know. Some of them don't give a fuck. They really don't. And some of them do. Okay? Let me tell you the joke. Conservative white people don't give a fuck. White liberals, they feel guilty, but they still want to hold on to their white privilege. Okay? They feel guilty about it because they know it's there. And they're like, oh my God, what do I do? But they don't want to let it go. (laughs) Trust me, I know. They feel bad about it, though. That's what makes it... The difference between a liberal and and a conservative white person when it comes to white privilege is that... A conservative white person knows they have white privilege and they love it and they protect it at all costs. A white liberal knows they have white privilege, uh, feel guilty about it, but still nonetheless want to hold on to it. That is the difference between white liberals and white conservatives when it comes to white privilege. <laughs> that, that's the truth. They like feel, white liberals be like, oh my God, I feel so bad. This is so unfair. But they're like, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> that's how they feel. That's how I feel. They're like, oh, that is messed up. Oh, I'll give some money to some black people to make them to, to, to do something. I'll, I'll throw a little money there. But, you know, shit hurts. My daughter's still going to go to the school. My, my kids are still going to be here. I, I don't want too many black kids. Not too many of them. Maybe just the good ones. This, the, the Ernest Owenses. I could be with them. I'll party with the Ernest Owenses of the world. That, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll hang out with them. Those are good black people. But I, not too many. Not too many. You know, I, I like Joshie's Philly. He's a good black. I'll, I'll be friends with him and his friends. And, and, and George, so articulate. You know, oh, I love Gio. Like, those are, those are good black people. You know, Ernest French and Marcus. Yeah, those, those, those blacks are fine. But I can't, and not too many of them, not too many of them. That's how they feel about us. They do. They don't want to say that, but that's how they do. We know. We know the truth. We deny it, right? We don't want to believe that, but we know it's true. We know it's true. And it makes them uncomfortable. They're listening to this podcast right now, probably feeling uncomfortable. Listen, it is what it is. There's a couple of ride or die white accomplices. But don't get don't get cocky because most of y'all are not accomplices. Uh, y'all are not. Y'all are not the y'all not about that life. Y'all not about that life. There's a couple though. But a lot of y'all are not about that life. And it's it's fine. You weren't ever taught to be. <laughs> you just weren't. You know, you're you're reckoning, you're reckoning with this, but it's it's never gonna lead to anything substantial. It's always gonna be incremental steps, right? We'll get a we'll, a black president here, we'll get a black CEO there, we'll we'll get somebody to acknowledge Black Lives Matter and we get excited. You know, and it makes me think about this controversy at Walmart, which I honestly, you know, I, uh, I'm i going to say this as a Texan about this whole Juneteenth ice cream situation. For those that don't know, Great Value, which is owned by Walmart, their, their brand, uh, 
they released these flavors of seasons. So I don't know all of them, but I know there was a Juneteenth flavor that I, of ice cream that had red velvet on it. And people were, there were black people who in large felt offended that there was this Juneteenth flavor. Now, apparently the flavor was sold from a black company. A black woman had a red velvet ice cream flavor, uh, ice cream apparently. They stole that concept from a black woman who has ice cream company had that flavor. But not just that, but they had this like black, you know, like, you know, gear, plate wear for cookouts and things. That was this branding and merchandising around the Juneteenth celebration. And this got everybody over it and floored with the flavor, offended. They was dragging on Twitter. Black Twitter had a field deck. Now, I was one of those people that thought it was stupid too. But here's the thing that's weird. You know, I, I, I and this is a conversation for black people only. So if you're white, you can listen, but really don't, don't, don't talk to me about it. It's not a conversation for us, us to talk about at all. Or, or anyone black. Don't talk to a black person about this. This is just really one of those, like, we're just going to have a little section real quick, and I'm just talking to black people directly. So what I want to know, and I want to figure out, and even not what I want to know, is that here's the problem with the Juneteenth situation in general. I grew up in Texas, so Juneteenth parade, that was my life. That was my life. I knew about Juneteenth before George Floyd died, before what was killed. Let's be clear, he was murdered. Um, before he was murdered, before all of those things. I already knew about Juneteenth. And when I started seeing, I mean, in, in Philadelphia, there is there what there has been a long Juneteenth group that's been pushing Juneteenth for years in Philadelphia. So I'm not going to take that away from them. But for everybody else that decided to wake up and celebrate Juneteenth in 2020 and since then, I, I just really want to be clear with y'all that I knew this was going to happen where you all were going to, and this is some black people too, get to a point where you all like to commodify black things that you don't know about because there is some black things and traditions that are native to certain areas. Not everything is meant to be mainstream, but I knew that in the performance of blackness of some folks that wanted to do the most, there was going to be this forceness of asking for corporations to acknowledge and invalidate, uh, I mean, to validate, I'm sorry, not invalidate, but well, validate this on a larger scale. And so you didn't think that in this, this setup, right, when you was asking companies to let you get off of Juneteenth, even though you didn't even know nothing about anything about Juneteenth until Juneteenth happened, you know, like you wanted the holiday, you wanted those things. What in the fuck did you expect? Like, what did you expect? I'm not saying that it's right, right? Because let's be clear. Walmart has discontinued that ice cream flavor. They've discontinued that labeling branding. And there's all these rumors about them trademarking Juneteenth. That's not true. Shut up. That's not what happened. But the, the, the reality is, is that they, you all asked for white acknowledgement and recognition of Juneteenth. And then you expected white people in capitalism not to do its thing. Of course they were going to do their thing. Of course they were going to show their ass to try to pander. It was bound to fucking happen. It couldn't happen in 2020 because they didn't have enough merchandising. It was too late for them to jump on the trend. But by 2022, oh yeah, they're coming out with a full campaign, marketing team, designs, surveys, asking people what they should do. Oh, they're showing their ass. They're trying to make a coin off of this shit. Of course, because like Black History Month, like they've been waiting for a black holiday. Like Black History Month was never anything they could sell, right? They had to perform for Black History Month. But when you're looking at Juneteenth, this is like an opportunity. It's treated like a 4th of July. They're like, oh, we can have cookout gear. We can have shirts. I mean, they know what they're doing. 
They've been waiting for an opportunity to capitalize off of this shit. So to the people that are like complaining about the ice cream, which again, I thought it was stupid. I want people to take a step back and take a moment to say, when we ask for white people to come in and validate quote unquote our shit, this is what happens. They acknowledge it and then they profit off of it. And so you have to tell yourself, how do I get the fuck out the white gaze, right? The gaze, G-A-Z-E. How do I get out the gaze of white people, right? Of not caring about whether or not they acknowledge this particular thing. Like my customs and traditions, I don't need white validation on. I need white people to acknowledge their white privilege. I need white people to understand the harm they commit. I need white people to be accountable. But I don't need white people to acknowledge my traditions. I don't need them to validate it or give it any type of thing. I don't need any of that. And I think that's the problem, even with Pride Month, right, is that there is this need to feel like, oh, we have to have cishet people acknowledge the month. We need them to see us. Bitch, they've been seeing us. <laughs> they see us. They see black people. They see queer people. They see us. And honestly, all we need is respect. And respect does not require you, requiring you having to find a profitable way to make money off of our shit. That's not how you see us. But that's how they do, right? They see us as dollar signs. They don't see black. They don't see brown. They see green. And that's what's happening. So with the Juneteenth situation, like, yes, I mean, yeah, it's stupid. The ice cream flavor is stupid. They're stupid for doing it. But like, are we fucking surprised? Like, take a step back. You know, people who didn't even understand the history of Juneteenth. I'm talking about black people who did not. You all just... Every it's just a there's a subset of our community that I feel like are so obsessed with white people validating. They want they want to find everything has to be a turn up in this big thing. And some stuff is just meant to be intimate. Some stuff is just for us. If you know, you know. I'm team if you know, you know. Some stuff I don't want to explain to white people. Some stuff don't need to be explained to white people. Some stuff is just a conversation between black people. And sometimes when black people are talking to each other and how we talk to each other, it's it's a cultural thing. There was a situation, <laughs> I'm just going to tease this a little bit, where uh, in, 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 in black community spaces, we sometimes call each other thick. Or even in queer spaces, amongst black queers, we'll say, oh, uh, you know, oh, so-and-so getting thick. There was a situation where we was referred to this person as a friend of mine was referring to someone as being thick. And the white guy who's, you know, there was like, oh, why, why, why are they calling my man thick? And I think they thought that we were insulting them by, like, talking about weight gain in a certain way. And it was like, no, it's a compliment. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But, like, it's those examples where you think about, like, how cultural things don't. Because white people are scared of weight. They're scared of thick. They, uh, you know, like they, they, their way they think about body and shape is very culturally different from the way that black people think about it or how, how we talk about it. Even in black queer culture, how we talk about it is very different. So it was just a moment where we was like, this was, this is very in, in house and it got into the outspace and it didn't translate the same way. And there, there's a lot of moments like that. It's nothing bad. It's just people have learning curves or just don't, you know, it's, it's okay. But, like, I just think we as a community have to be okay with not feeling like we have to water down 
or change some of the things we talk about or way. It's either up to them to find out on their own or just them just understanding and embracing living in a world where they don't get all the things. Like there's there's, there's a lot of stuff white people do that I don't get. I don't get why y'all made Sweet Caroline y'all swag and surf. I don't know why Sweet Caroline is like a song that y'all feel like is the marching order to do a dance to. I just think it's a cute little song, but I don't get why that is y'all song to choose. It has like literally no real groove. You really can't get jiggy with it. I mean, it's not the kind of song that you could really groove to. There's no swag to it. I don't get it. Okay. But again, I'm not white. White people get it. They they get it. Some people can say they don't like it. It's fine. You're not winning cool points with me. Listen, white people love that song. That's their shit. They get down with the inserted parts of this country. Don't act like you don't. We got the footage. And I'm just, <laughs> and I don't get it, but it's okay. It's not for me to get, I don't need to know how to do it. I don't need to get, I mean, I grew up with square dancing because I was, I lived in Texas, but I don't get square dancing. I, I get, I know about it, but I'm like, there's better ways to get down. Again, there's just some stuff that we just not going to get. Some of y'all don't understand the lecture slides. Some of y'all was like, why they do it like that? Why they got to do that? How come they do the lecture slides to every type of dance? Because you can do it to every fucking dance. Um, but like, you know, that's a cultural thing. And some people are like, what's the electric slide? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <sighs> it's okay. I think we just have to get back to a time in which it was okay to not know everybody's shit. <laughs> I wish we could go back to a time who could buy their business unless it pays them. Like, it's my business to know your business because I'm a journalist. But some people, I'm just like, sometimes it's okay not to know everything that does not pertain to you. It's okay. It's all right. Especially if you're going to learn it and you're not going to do anything right with it, right? You're going to learn it and you're going to appropriate it. You're going to, you know, uh, capitalize off of it. You're going to do other, you're going to exploit it, right? That's why we don't want people to know, right? Because you'll become Katy Perry. <laughs> True, right? You become Katy Perry, and 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 we and we don't need another Katy Perry, right? You learn something and you want to run off with it, and then years later apologize for it. Anywho, so yes, Juneteenth ice cream horrible, but like as a community, like let's get better at you know pushing back as a mission, just being like, nah, we good here, because I know that a lot of companies are about to roll out with some Juneteenth shit. And I know we're going to, it's going to be just like Pride Month when we see the straights with their rainbow capitalism doing a bunch of extra shit. It's just part of the, it's just part of the plan. So other things that's been going on this week. um, So uh, I guess we're all on theme here, right? So there's this show called Drink Champs with a rapper named Noriega, but now he's like a, you know, reality TV star. Now he hosts this show, this podcast, where he drinks a lot, but he's been going sober, which is good for him. Well, he has he had Tank on his show, and Tank was talking about how he performs at Pride. Uh, Tank is a washed-up R&B... Let me be nice. No, let me not be nice. He's got my nerves. He is a washed-up R&B artist that, you know, I guess looks good, still has a good body intact, I suppose. And he performs at Pride. He's been performing at Pride for years, and there's been all these rumors about him being gay. Um, because, oh, heaven forbid the straight man performs at Pride, as if Rika and Galicia. See, we don't want tech. We want Usher. And I do not mean that with shade. Uh, bring Usher to a Pride. Can Usher do some Prides? That's what we really want. We, we, we don't want Tank. Tank is like the bootleg Usher, even though he can't dance like that. But, like, it's like we really want Usher. But they can't afford Usher. Or could Usher, will Usher do it? I don't know. 
Ushers have rumors, but Usher to me is like, <laughs> let me be respectful. I, I think Usher's fine. I think Usher is fine, and I think he is fine. I think Usher is just, I enjoy Usher. I think he is a great artist. He's a, incredible. He's the he's an icon. He's one of the last, like, greats that we have in the industry. Like, ugh, love him. And he's a Libra. Like, his birthday's two days after mine. His birthday's October 14th. I'm October 12th. Ugh. So, of course he's on top. I mean, and he gave us a diamond album, y'all. He gave us confessions. How many artists have had has a confessions? Every time they compare him to Chris Brown, I always say, and where is Chris Brown's confessions? Okay, because Chris Brown has been giving y'all the same album. Like, I think he's on his 12th studio album. I didn't even know he had, like, that many albums out. I was like, what? Like, I feel like the last seven albums has sounded the same. <laughs> I haven't kept up. I think I was off of him after Fame, maybe. Like, when he had that song, Loyal. You remember that? These hoes ain't loyal. I don't know what else he's been doing lately. You know, it's just been the same redundant shit. But somebody, his fans love him, and they keep trying to compare him to Usher. And I'm just like, where? I mean, where? He's really the tatted up, drugged up, you know, great value version of Usher. He's not really Usher. I, I mean, he's talented, but he's not Usher. And I wish I stopped comparing them. Because in spite of all the things that Usher had going on in his life, Usher was able to have some composure, have some sense of respect, and was able to sell hit records and also be able to vocally be strong. Chris Brown's vocals are not that strong compared to Usher's, nor does he have the creativity and the ability to be versatile. Like, he's doing the same shit that works for him. It's always graffiti. It's always tats. It's always a mix of rap. Like, we get the same thing. It reminds me of that cartoon, Doug, where Doug, you know, remember Doug? You know, if y'all don't not know who Doug and Patty Mayonnaise is, you're too young for me. But <laughs> if you do remember Doug and Patty and the dog and all of that stuff and Buster, if you remember this show, then that means you're in the right demographic for this podcast. If you do not know this show, you might be too young. But anyone who remembers Doug, okay, remembers that when Doug went to the drawer to get his clothes, it was always the same uniform. It was always that green sweater vest, that white shirt, and those khaki cargo shorts. That was Doug, okay? We all know that. That's how I feel about Chris Brown's catalog. It's the same fucking uniform. He got like nothing but Doug. It's like, what, which outfit I'm going to wear today? And it's the same outfit. Doug, Chris Brown, the connection. So getting into this situation about how did I get to Chris Brown and Tank? So Tank was on the podcast and he was talking about how, you know, People have criticized him, but he doesn't have anything against people, uh, the LGBTQ community and their lifestyle. Yes, he said lifestyle cringe. Um, and that, you know, it, it, you know, he's going to always be supportive of these fans. He called them sissies. He said that he was at a concert one time in a show and they were acting real uptight and clapping. And he's like, if y'all sissies don't turn up for me, like, Yes, he used the word sissies. And he was just like, he wanted them to enjoy themselves. And he gives them the same quality show that he gives his uh, straight women fans. I'm not judging. Okay, Tank. He said he going to give them the same equal opportunity. So he goes up. He he has the shirt off. He, he turns up. He gives them the same kind of show that he gives the ladies because that's what he gives. Less of the vocal ability, but more of the physicality. Like, he's just, you know, he's just basically... That was the era of R&B, if y'all remember Tank. And if you don't remember Tank or don't know who Tank is, it's okay, because a lot of people don't. Uh, he's, you know, he's very, 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 very inner R&B. But Tank has always played into, like, 
<laughs> certain sexual tropes. Some people peak sexual awakenings. Um, but like he's always been like the R&B artist that was always selling sex and body. He was all that, like that was part of his allure. He was always going to be selling you body. Like when I think about Pretty Ricky and them boys, like there was that era where all they had was abs. What they lacked in vocal death, they made up in abs, unless they were Usher. Usher had both. A lot of them did not have both. Um, so they always had to have a chest. They always had to have abs. It was like a rites of passage outside of Boys to Men. Let's not. But Boys to Men were exceptional because they had vocals. See, when you got vocals, you don't got to do all that. The Boys to Men boys, you know, they weren't necessarily model-esque boys and bodies, but they had vocals. But then you go to Drew Hill. Drew Hill had Cisco, but them boys weren't like tight like that, but they had vocals. See, Drew Hill, Boys the Men have vocals. But then you start going to Jagged Edge and 112. Now, they can sing, but the more they body they had, the less their vocal abilities were. Because I think Drew Hill and I think uh, Boys the Men, that's top tier R&B vocals. But when you start going down, the more abs they showed, the less their vocals. And then that's how you got Trey Songs, right? Which sounds like a Billy Gruff's Gruff's Gruff. He, he sounds like a goat. Not a goat as in greatest of all time but like actual go that's what he sounds like sometimes um but now he's confused he's being you know he's a accused rapist and everything else now but most of them now the oh now see see i know y'all was gonna track get me r kelly was given body and vocals too but he was also a pedophile something was wrong with him but he was one of the few too that could sing and also was given body Clearly, the body wasn't for adults, which is why he's canceled, as he should. But, like, the, most of the R&B guys, or boys at that time, those boy bands and groups, it was, it was very clear what they were given. Tank was always just, like, floating around. Like, he had a couple of these cute little songs, but he was always just, like, the guy who was just doing the same thing. Like, Jimmy Wine. Jimmy Wine can't sing that well. I mean, his vocals are cute, but he wasn't really, like, a strong, great singer. But he just had body and sex appeal. That was like that era of the, the late 90s, early 2000s. It was just body. And if you can hold a note. Now, let me say this. All of these boys, all of those men back then who could sing. Even though they weren't the best singers, they sound a lot better than any shit I'm hearing on the radio today. They, that, that, what, I will give them that. That most of them sound a lot better then some of these guys that's trying to do this now. What's his name? Jer Jer not Jeremiah. Um, my friend used to love him, but he he just he's just a horrible singer. But she loved him back in the day. She used to think he just was special. Jocelle something I can't pronounce it. Amanda, she be having interesting taste. She likes Giveon. Giveon's good. He's okay, but Giveon's not giving anybody. But it's not like he has to either. I mean, he's he's pretty decent. But like it was this guy. Jeremiah, not Jeremiah, but like he was some singer and he just was always stealing from the girls. Ella Mae, all of them. Um, you know, he was like doing all those covers. And I used to tell people anytime the boys were doing nothing but covers, that was always a red flag. Like, why you got to do covers all the time? You don't feel comfortable singing, you know, um, you know, you you don't feel comfortable singing um, any of your songs. Um, Jacques, Jacques, that was his name. The R&B guy name was Jacques, Jacques. He didn't have much of a career. He had a song called You and All Your Bullshit. Remember that? I'd rather be with you and all your bullshit. That guy. 
So he's corny, but he he was out here with these bad vocals doing the most. It wasn't even singing. It wasn't even crooning. Like Omarion, we forget Omarion. Like he had okay vocals and body, but these guys weren't serving up. Anyway, Tank was always kind of like in that type of threshold, body and semi-decent vocals. So he always had a reputation of going to his concerts, being freaky, doing all that grinding stuff, showing his abs, rubbing himself down. You know, he was just always, that was like the whole allure of him. You know, magic mic energy. So he's talking about like how he went to this show and like he wanted to give these, these, the gay guys a good show. So he's always been performing at Pride because he was supposed to be that eye candy for those guys. And that was like the fun of him. And, you know, when I was hearing about this in the beginning, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Well, that's good. Acceptance, yada, yada, yada. But then he goes into this turn of saying, you know, how can I ever, you know, be mad at them? They're feeding me, putting food on my table for my family. And, you know, I, I you know, I sit there and I say, you know, where the bag at? I was like, oh, 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 that's what it's about. So. He was trying to justify to drink champs, okay, Noriega and these other straight men that was on that podcast. He's like trying to explain that basically he does this because the fans, he's got gay fans and they're customers and he sees the money in them. And so that's why he feels like it's okay. So it's like you're not really seeing the humanity of these individuals, but you or you are, but it's because you have to work with them and it's, a, it's you're making money off of them. Because heaven forbid that, you know, they were just in your regular shows, you wouldn't want them to be at the front. I've I've had experiences with musicians like that. I, you know, there was a guy, an artist that, that's not as popular anymore, at, you know, named Miguel. Y'all remember Miguel? Yes. Grammy winner Miguel. Mm. I'll tell this story. I've never really told this story. Uh, I don't think I've told it on this podcast, but oh, many, 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 many years ago. I want to say about 10 years ago, actually. Yeah, it was like 2012 when this happened. Miguel was 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 hot at the time. Um he had that album Kaleidoscope Dream, which is a really good record. Um and he had the song Adorn, which was like playing everywhere. Y'all know that song, you know. And he was performing at Penn at a concert. This is like right before he really jumped off and then of course jumped on somebody and then of course hasn't really had much of a real career since it's kind of been iffy uppy, up and down but he never really popped off and I think the rumors of him beefing with Frank Ocean which is even more interesting but anywho he was performing and I was at the front row I was such a groupie not really a groupie a stand I was excited I was in the front row of the concert and you know I was definitely having a good time I was standing out everything well, I was one of the people that got to go to back because I was helping to promote this event uh, concert. And he tells me, he makes it a point to single me out in the group. And it's like, oh, well, you know, um, I guess talking about how uncomfortable he was, I was at the front row and I was being a fan. Because apparently he's had a reputation of requesting only women are at the front row of his concerts. But this is a college crowd that's very queer, very intersectional, very different. We don't play those games. And these are college girls and college guys like myself. But he was very, you know, very specific about wanting women at the front row of his concerts. And I'm just like, what? So, yeah, and he singled me out. And I remember looking at him, he said, I said, so, okay, but are you going to sign my album? 
because I had bought copies for him to autograph, which he did. But I just think it's interesting because that, like, that culture of music and, and that, like, that kind of stuff. I mean, does it still happen today in music? Probably. But, like, the idea of, like, this ladies only, ladies at the front, like, that very, you know, you know what it's giving. It's homophobic. That ideology around music and how it makes people feel and how people connect to it is just weird. And also the lack of confidence. Tank was saying in his interview on Drink Champs that he's very confident with sexuality. None of that bothers him because he knows who he is. And so he was never worried about gay. Like he doesn't care about the gay rumors because he, you know, like, you know, it is, it's not a, you know, it's a, he doesn't care about because he's very comfortable with sexuality. I just, just, it's just interesting to me that like even now, but Again, I'm not too surprised, but this obsession with like people trying to curate <laughs> like their sexuality in these weird ways. Not tank, but talking about like the Miguel's of the world. Like I wonder if he still does that at concerts. If he's still even like getting booked for concerts like that. But I digress. So that being said, um Noriega, right, Nori, who hosts Drink Champs, have went on Twitter, not about this, but was this brings me to my next point about Joe Budden, this idiot, about how, why is it that the culture, right, these musicians aren't talking to them? Like, they're going to talk to Oprah and Gail, which shouldn't even count, but they're going to David Letterman. They're talking to all these other people, but they're not coming on our shows and talking to us, referring to people like himself, hip-hop bloggers and people like him. And in my mind, I was like, because y'all are some of the dumbest, childish, most immature interviewers, quote unquote, because I can't even call them journalists. They're not journalists that I know. And then lo and behold, the Isaiah Rashad interview with Joe Budden took place. Now, let's talk about this real quick. You all have known. I've been talking about the Isaiah Rashad situation for a while. Isaiah Rashad is a black male rapper. There was that sex tape that leaked of him uh, you know, several very, very graphic videos of him, you know, having same sexual relations with other people. And it was, you know, it was, you know, he was, it was embarrassing for him, right? That someone leaked this and it was used to humiliate him. And he was basically the victim of this very, very grotesque um, queer shaming and sex shaming and, and everything else, right? Because the idea is, you know, he has children, Um He's not married, but he has children. Um, to the public, he was known as heterosexual. People, you know, thought he was, you know, have received him as straight. Um, and it, and no one had an inkling that he could possibly be. So he was outed in the most uh, grotesque way. I mean, he was in video. I'm not assessing how he should have covered it or whatever, because that's not the point. Um, but let's to be clear, the, the videos, he was very much okay with being in the videos, but what he wasn't okay with was the fact that they were leaked without his consent. Um, and also the other people in those videos, but it's just, it was a lot. And, um, yeah, it was very, it was, it was very depressing. So he did this very vulnerable interview with Joe Budden, which I, he talks about, you know, how he crashed his car two days after because of his nerves. His grandfather died of a stroke two days later. He said his family and folks knew, people knew in his inner circle. Um, he's a part of Top Dog Entertainment. Um, he 
you know, talked about that he was sexually fluid. He's sexually fluid. That's how he describes himself. He won't say gay or queer, um, but he calls himself sexually fluid, which is a thing. It's just real. It's, it's you know, people, sexual fluidity means basically that uh, people who, you know, they they are driven, their attraction is driven by, you know, what they like, and they're not going to be restricted to gender or particular identity. So, you know, he might like people that are transgender. He might be attracted to people who are uh, queer. He might be attracted to people who are bisexual. Like his, he's open. You know, if he likes a man, he likes a man. If he likes a trans person, he likes a trans person. If he likes someone who's queer, like he doesn't have any restrictions on his, his desires. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense because he does have children. He has you know, slept with women. It's it's he's fluid in that way. So he that's how he identifies, and you know he's very confident. Um, in this interview, Joe Budden, you know, was an asshole. He just asked dumb questions. Um, he made certain allusion allu- alluded to things that were weird. He was having conversations with him about mon- monogamy, and I think, um. You know, Isaiah was very much clear that he is monogamous, that he that that's, you know, that, that that's not the same thing, that he's not just dating multiple people. That wasn't the conversation. It was about his attraction, which means that you could be sexually fluid and be completely monogamous. What the fuck is he talking about? Joe Budden, right? But then he has another conversation where he um, talks about uh, being fluid and he said to him, Joe Budden asked him, was he sober during the times in which he was like, that he was having those experiences? And I just was like, wow, wow. So black people, black straight men have to be, or men, black men have to, you know, that are in hip hop have to be somehow intoxicated or drugged or confused or in some other altered state in order for them to be open to embracing different genders and sexualities. Okay, Joe, tell us how you really feel. So I spoke out about it on Twitter. It went viral, of course, and people were talking about it, debating about it. Um, the CEO of Top Dog Entertainment just put an LOL response. A lot of the hip-hop heads are in their feelings. Who gives a fuck? Because, really, who gives a fuck? Um, so what's interesting to me has been that, the, you know... Isaiah has a lot of agency, right? I'm. I, I think that two things can be true. People can tell their stories. People can interview whoever they want to interview or talk to. But there's also the implications of how other people are impacted by those things, right? That in the pro- if you're like in the process of you telling your story or feeling comfortable talking to Joe, if that's how you feel. But when we're having these larger conversations that oftentimes don't get enough spotlight in certain industries that they also oftentimes fall short. And I always talk about this. And so I personally felt like the Isaiah Rashad interview was infuriating. I I just feel like this man is being vulnerable. And I just felt like the person that he was being vulnerable with, in this case, Joe Budden, was like literally somebody who did not deserve that vulnerability. I I, I just don't think it was, I just, no. I thought it was a missed opportunity. And and part of me just, am ti- I'm tired, right, of our members of our community, whether they're sexually fluid, queer, non-binary, whatever, right, 
feeling like they have to go to the Joe Buttons, the Charlemagne the Gods, and the rest of these hip-hop bloggers and quote-unquote personalities who really do lack the range, the depth, the maturity, and expertise to tackle these types of topics. Like, I'm serious. I'm dead ass. Like, I am so tired of it. Like, it's so... Like, these conversations are so babyish. Like, you don't do any fucking research. You don't know anything about what you're talking about. And you get to get a check and get to sit up here and interview people and ask people dumb questions. And every time we have the conversation, the queer conversation, it's always the same redundant-ass type of conversation where it's, how did you know? Why do you need to know? Why is it your privilege? Why do we owe any of you are explanation. Why do we feel like we have to have these coming out conversations? I'm, I'm over them personally. And if we do, why do we feel like we have to go to these people, right? That, that if the culture is, is being owned by men who are accused of abuse and rape and violence towards people like Charlemagne the God and Joe Budd and others, like, why are we giving it to the most toxic, trash-ass cis-hit men that we know that think this shit is funny, that, that always loves to create these bad ignorant narratives about our people that causes harm through their rhetoric every fucking chance they get and then always think that because they say they don't have a problem that that's enough when actually they continue to allow to give the mic and amplify voices that oftentimes speak harm into our lives on a regular basis and everyone keeps saying, oh, it's great conversation. No, it's not. What it is, is that you feel the same way and you listen to it because that's what you think. And so you like people like them to exist because they're your soundboards for your fuck shit. I'm not stupid. I know how this works. Like, like if you're listening to, if, if Joe Budden is the place you're going to learn about sexual fluidity, we're already off the rocker here. We're off the rocker. And I want to be very clear about this. To all of the black queer artists who think that going to people like Joe Budden in the Breakfast Club is going to help amplify them before this culture, right? Understand this, and I mean this. The very spaces that made it hard for you to be out and comfortable will never be the same spaces and places that will liberate you. They never will. Like, part of the reason why Isaiah Rashad and people in hip-hop like him don't ever feel comfortable ever coming out or disclosing any of these things is because of the fact that, let's be 100, the hip-hop culture and the music industry at large is homophobic. But largely within hip-hop, there are a lot of arbitrators that make it a point. We live in a world, right, where Boosie will find a thousand ways to attack trans people, to attack queer people every chance he gets, even when it's not true. Like he was implying, he was sharing a fake image of, of the shooter at the Texas shooting, school shooting, the mass shooting, there was an image that he shared that they were running around Candace, all these people was alluding to, that this, that the shooter was a transgender person and, and, they, and they put this picture that wasn't even the person. And then use that to insect to send flies, misinformation. People were quick to jump on that, right? Oh yes, I knew it. They weird, they this, they that. And that wasn't even true. And so there is an obsession with blaming the gays, blaming the queer people, blaming the trans people, alphabet community. You know, th there's all of that vitriol and ignorance and hate. And these people know the audience, right? They know the audience that they, they love it. Either they're attacking black women or they're attacking LGBTQI people. There is no way that these podcasts will thrive 
or succeed unless they're going at black women or they're going at LGBTQI people. Like that's like the recipe for a hip hop blogger space is to always have a situation where either black women are being the target in the brunt of jokes or being trashed or being slut shamed or LGBTQ people are being treated as some type of oddity and rarity and, and something to insult, to degrade and to belittle and to mock. That is the, the, the genesis of a successful hip-hop blog or podcast. That is the ingredients. I do not know a single super successful black hip-hop blog or podcast that does not have elements that demean and debase black women and or attack LGBTQI people. They have to coexist. They have to for them. Because that is the audience. That is what the audience wants. Name me one that don't do that. That's super successful. I'm not saying they don't exist. That's super successful. The Breakfast Club, Vlad TV, Drink Champs, they predicate off of that. They predicate off of that. Period. Period. They benefit from it. They benefit off of it. That's their profit margin. You got to attack the gays and attack black women. They they have to do it. And if they don't do that, it won't work. They're using the same model. Must be majority men at the table. Must be male-led. Must be male-centric. Men, 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 men. Cishet men. Men of color from different backgrounds. It is a recipe. You have to have a majority men. You know, one woman. But that woman has to be able to agree or compliment your toxic ass thoughts. Like there is always the enabler. That is the recipe. That is the recipe. That is the recipe. Find that show that doesn't do that. That's super successful. And I'm going to laugh because you can't. Because that's literally how they've been running it for decades. That's how they make their money. That's how they profit. And... This Isaiah Rashad interview is a textbook example of that. And then they wonder why there's not a lot of people that are out that come. I had a dream a couple of days ago that if I was doing my book tour and I had the opportunity to go to the breakfast club, I would go. And I would literally like, like sabotage it. Like I would like go to the interview and I would drag Charlemagne the God, I would drag the Breakfast Club for filth. I would like literally go on the show and completely drag it so that, and I would call out everything they've done and I would literally drag them and I would be like, I would just drag them and goof on them the whole time just so that they could feel what so many people felt like when they went on those shows. And I would just be there to mock them and to drag them and to do what they've done to people that look like us consistently. I would do it. I would not go there and try to act like and legitimize them in that way. I would go there to tell them about themselves. I would go there to literally drag them. And I wouldn't care how it would be read. That is my dream. If I could, if it happens, if the opportunity presents itself, that's exactly what I would do. I doubt it because Charlamagne the God is afraid of me. He doesn't want to see me in the same room. That man avoids me. That man knows I know his shit. And that man knows that I know that I will call him to the carpet and it would not be a good look for him. He does not engage with me. He don't want me on his show. There was an opportunity a while ago where people want to get me on that show. And I kept telling him that he's never going to because he knows 
He knows. He knows. He knows. He knows. He goes after. He knows who to go after. He knows who to come at. He knows how that shit works. He's not coming to me. He's not doing it. He's not. Unless he comes with a sobering heart. But he's not. And I don't need it. Okay? I don't need it. Like, I've seen so many black queer people that that say, oh, I got to go on there. We got to meet people where they're at. No, no. Those people are at, like, literally six feet under, dead with the thoughts they have about our community. You you can't save that. You can't save those people. You just can't. You can't. So, yeah, that's them. So, Netflix. I am canceling my Netflix subscription, y'all. I can't. I saw that Ted Serranos, who's the CEO of Netflix, he did an interview for the New York Times. I encourage you all to read that New York Times uh, profile on him and his thoughts about Netflix. But I, I can't. I'm over Netflix. And you know what's crazy? I don't even remember the last time I went to Netflix. Like, I don't remember the last time I actually watched anything on Netflix. Maybe it was on the Oscar season. Maybe the movie. Some of the movies I think I saw. But I don't I don't know. I, I'm, I'm over Netflix. I really... Right now, I don't have a use for it. I'm over it. Like, Ricky Gervais, here he come with his transphobia. Which, Ricky Gervais has always been a problem, but good God. Here he come with his fuck shit. Then, then you know, Chappelle. And, and the thing is, the CEO of Netflix stands by defending them. He stands by Dave Chappelle. He thinks that they're saying things that are smart. No, you're just making money off of the ignorance. And we think that this is how it goes? Okay, cool. Tell me how you really feel. I can't support it. He defends Ricky Gervais. He says, nobody would say that what he does is in thoughtful or smart, referring to Dave Chappelle. Nobody would say that what he does is in thoughtful or smart. Yeah, the transphobia isn't thoughtful or smart. The fuck? Like your employees are walking out. Or let's talk about how they just did those massive layoffs and all those black creative writers and, and black women and diverse writers that were there to help them with their image got all laid off. Contractors got cut. People got displaced. Like, fuck out of here. Netflix went from being the ideal place to work for some people to now being the trash chute. And I say all this while probably, ooh, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. Right now, I'm just not feeling Netflix. I'm not feeling Netflix right now. I'm not. I'm not feeling them. I just don't. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Oh, goodness. And it's sad because, I mean, Netflix isn't probably going away anytime soon. Their stock is dropping or has had a major drop. They lost like over $50 billion in a day or some shit like that. It was wild. But I don't know. I don't know what's the future of them. But I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling them. I'm not feeling it at all. So just wanted to update y'all on that. But look into those interviews. Like, really look into Netflix. There's some stuff going on with Netflix. Look into Netflix. So. Influencers. Yes, I want to have a conversation about influencers. And I want to have a conversation about the industry, about influencers. I've had some thoughts about it for a while, but I really feel like this week, even though there was a lot of great events, there has just been some reoccurring themes I've noticed. And I think there's some there's 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 some time to have a chat because I've been wanting to have some things to say for a minute about the influencer culture. Uh in Philadelphia, but I think it's a national thing to be honest. But let's talk about Philadelphia and things. So I'm not really thinking about black influencers because ain't that many black influencers that's getting invited to these events or doing their thing. You know, when I say Josh East Philly, myself and maybe George or, or Gio, 
maybe one of the few, maybe a couple other, two or three or whatever. It ain't that many of us, like a handful of us that get to go to these events and, 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 and to be clear, get to see this stuff, right? Everybody else is like media journalists. Like, I'm a journalist. Like, I mean, people consider me an influencer. I am influential, but I'm, I'm a journalist, right? And then there are people like so influential. Like, most of the black people that are at these events are oftentimes media. They're journalists. And then like, as far as like actual like influencers, it's like less than 10 black influencers that get, cause that go, I would say less than five. Cause it's like that just solely do influencing. It's not that many. We're rare. But we're not who I'm, they're not who I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about these white girls um, and these guys, some of these dudes, but really white girls. Influencer culture in Philly, man, in Philly, Philly culture is very much so white young girls that come from money, that do this as a hobby, that want to be able to have some level of a social life that they can somehow curate and, and control. That's really what this is. They don't actually have a true brand. Um, they oftentimes do not really have much of a real following. A lot of these people are buying their followers. Um, a lot of them don't really know anything about the business at all. Um, and I'm talking about really the food team because most of these influencers are rooted in food. Um, a lot of them don't know what is going on. What is sad is, and I don't know who's the blame. Is it the influencers, the culture, the PR firms and groups that bring them out? But I'm here to do a read because it's time to have this conversation. With the exception of a couple of influencers and they know who they are, so I don't even have to acknowledge them. Just, just move aside. But with the exception of a very small few, which I don't even get into who and what, because they know who they are. Because they're not doing this. And they, and they also are not who I'm talking about. So, you know. But a lot of them, I am talking about you. There is this weird thing where what has happened lately, and I'm going to keep it real funky because I'm just tired of it. We see this situation where these, these companies, these restaurants, these PR people, they, they've gotten lazy. Some of these PR firms have gotten lazy. They think that these influencers, quote unquote, will get people, get buzz for their clients. I'm willing to bet. And it's, it's some of them are at the point where they think that influencers are better replacements than media. Ha! That's dumb. But we'll get into it. But what's been happening lately is that there's been this culture of a lot of influencers that are creating Instagram accounts. They go to places, they snap pictures of food, they buy followers, and sometimes they get them organically. And there is boom. Because they say, look at these likes I have. Look how many people are looking at my post. And they look at this based on this analytical thing, right? And these brands, right, these companies... Look at that and say, ooh, if you can't in my business, you're going to get people to come out to my thing. You're going to get people to buy my shit. Oh, if people see you with this, they're going to want to buy it. So they think that they invite these people and they eat the food and take the pictures. And then they, you know, post them and they think that this is it. So this becomes a thing. Many people think this is okay. 
Like they think that this culture around influencing is something that they can just, you know, slide right in. And for, for a long time, that was the process. People would create an account. In the very beginning, they would just, you know, build followers, push food, and they would get invited to things. And it was normal. The hierarchy has always been, in my opinion, has been that the top tier rankings would be that TV was always considered the big one, right? Everybody wanted their clients to be on TV. So TV media was always prioritized. And after that, it would be print media. And then after print media, it would be um, celebrities or notable people that people know. And then there would be influencers at the bottom. That was the hierarchy of importance to uh PR people and folks that wanted to get traction. Everybody wanted to get the TV hit. Everybody always wanted to have the glossy magazine or digital online story or print story. And then, you know, if a celebrity came by and took a picture with the food or somebody, some Eagles player, that would be popping. And at the very bottom of the list would be influencers. That's the hierarchy. That still is the hierarchy. If you go to any influence event, there's always going to be TV media Always. And then after that, the print media and then everyone else. So I'm in the print media slash notable person category. Right. And then the influencers. That's the that's the that's the ranking. That's the that's that's how it works in the food chain. But over time, what has happened is that influencers began to some of them began to really abuse what they thought they had, what clout they had. So. They weren't no longer happy just to be invited and have the experience. They began to start making other demands that seemed to be ridiculous. And the crazy part is that a lot of these companies and brands and people that work with them start to really buy into the hype and the manipulation. Like you were getting pimped out by folks in their 20s and early 30s behind shit that really isn't going to bring out the traction you think it's going to bring. And this is now starting to grow. The influencer... Culture in Philadelphia started to hit an interesting turn of events. I think something is about to happen that's going to blow the lid off of all this. And it's starting to slowly but surely because it's too much of... I'm seeing it. I'm a trends guy. I follow trends. I see stuff. There is starting to be an implosion because too many people are doing things that are really, really problematic. And it didn't have to be this way, but now it's showing. So one of the things that's been really interesting is that TikTok has come. I don't have a TikTok. I've been famous for not having a TikTok. I, I'm not crazy about TikTok personally. I don't, it's not that I don't get it. It's just that I just think it doesn't serve me. Um, I think people have gotten obsessed with TikTok. Some people have. They say, oh, my video got this many views. There's PR people out here that's obsessing over those views. There's people out here being like, oh my God, this TikTok got this, so this means this. And the truth of the matter is that these are all algorithms, people. Algorithms will never replace talent. Let me say that again. Algorithms will never replace talent. There is now this new subculture of people that are basing their talent, quote unquote, off of algorithms and numbers. And you have to say to yourself, who the fuck are you and why the fuck do you think that that matters, right? That there is this algorithm of like, oh, this got this many views, but then last week I lost this many. And you're basing it and you're not realizing that these these social media sites are fucking with the algorithms, right? That there's certain stuff 
that gets more likes than others. They 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 hyper promote certain things. It's a it's a fucking thing that you're playing with. If you can manipulate an algorithm, that means anybody can manipulate an algorithm, which means that if, if you're basing your talent and your success off of an algorithm, that means that you have no actual raw talent to actually drive anything, which means that if you're basing your entire success off of a fucking algorithm on TikTok, then that means that literally your up and your down goes based off of. You have no crossover appeal. You cannot go into other sectors. You don't have a brand. You don't have a likeliness. You're just running off of numbers that are juiced and don't have any real traction. So one of the crazy things is that I've been noticing lately that there's been this obsession. A lot of these PR firms are getting lazy. A lot of these organizations are, or companies are, are just you know, gravitating to things based on virality, but they're not recognizing how things are going viral and what's making them viral. And they don't understand social media at all. So if you look at someone with a lot of followers, you say, oh, that person must be something. Well, who the fuck are they with the followers and why do they should have followers? So I've been very big on getting my friends, which they have been doing, to brand their stuff so that they can own an identity so that their shit can actually have some legitimacy to it. So like people do been doing like my friend Gio, right? Has Gio's table. Josh has Josh East Philly. Now they had this before we were all close friends, but there's something to be said that a lot of the black people that I know, including my husband, Barton DeBerry, Ernest Mini Empire, we brand our stuff with our stuff. Because that's part of our allure, right? That people know that when you go on Josh East Philly, it's a black guy a black queer guy promoting incredible food and it's his black hands in that picture that it's another guy's hand, which is his partner's and that there's a story there and there's an invested interest to follow him, right? We love seeing him with a donut in his hand like or multiple donuts in his hand or when he breaks those cookies. There's something about those melanated hands or those cookies that work. But, but some of these people are not doing that. Right? No, we don't know who the hell they are, or they all look the same. How many girl duo groups are going to be out here promoting food? How many girl duo groups, white girls that are privileged girls that dress out, go out for a night? How many of those girl groups are we going to have? How many of it going to be the same type of white girl? Like it's a very same group, and they're all going to the same places. They're all going to the same events, and they're all doing the same fucking spreads. And at some point, you have to take a step back and say, well, what makes you different from the last group? And then you look at the sophistication of the food. Because that's the thing that gives it to me. I know real foodies when I see them, okay? Like, I'm a real fucking foodie. Like, I know what these things are. You go to these events, because I've gone to several of them. You see some of these influencers. They don't want to eat anything of actual artistic value and substance. They don't know what the fuck tuna tartare is. They only want burgers and fries. They, they, they take pictures of pizza and they get likes and, it, and, and their audiences are kids. They're feeding fucking kids. That's the crazy part is that their taste is different. If you go to my page, if you follow my hashtag Ernest Eat just for fun, you're going to see duck. You're going to see tuna tartare. You're going to see ceviche. You're going to see you're going to see liver. You're going to see pad thai. You're going to see everything on that fucking thing because a real foodie eats it all. They eat it all. They try it all. You know, I got people out here, I don't do spicy food, but I'm an influencer. I don't do spicy. I don't like spicy. It's too hot. It's too spicy. I don't, you know, but you're at an Indian restaurant and you don't eat spicy food. Then why the fuck are you here? Because Indian food is spicy. What is that? That's cute. I'm going to take a picture of that. It's called octopus. 
Oh, yeah, not really like octopus. You never had octopus. <laughs> You've never had it before. The only thing you can eat is fried calamari. I think that's artistic, right? But like, this is food culture, right? These people don't know anything about food. They actually don't know anything about food. They don't. They, they look at things, labels. Hot dogs, burgers, pizza, donuts, cookies. It's cool if you can promote those things on your page, but you, you can't promote other things of sophistication. You're only going to be promoting cheesesteaks and hoagies. Like the next fucking 50, 60 food blogs out there. Everybody goes to the same places. Everybody do the same shots. Everybody's copying everybody's swag. You know, a couple of people have found original ways, but the rest of y'all coming out the woodwork, buying a bunch of followers that didn't evaporate. Your, your, your followers don't match your likes. Like you got 25,000 followers, but you're only getting about maybe 100 likes on the post. Interesting. Interesting. You, you don't have... People that really are enthusiastic, the, the engagement of your followers are not there. You got a bunch of cryptocurrency sellers and, you know, uh, Xerox sellers and Forex trade comments in your section. These are bulk followers. You know, my following, I got 14,000 followers on Instagram. Not bad for a guy who's not showing his ass and all his pictures are going to the beach. I'm pretty proud of myself. Um, <laughs> you go to my page, right? You see my food, you see my stuff. Those are real people engaging. Right? You don't got no Forex traders. You don't got no random crazy bots and stuff on the page. I don't have any of that. My shit is real. That's all real. Real people, real issues, real problems, real conversations. I look at some of these pages. I'm like, this is, this, this is fake hype. But then let's keep it 100, right? I look at some of this stuff and I say to myself, some of these people... Are, 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 are clearly not even professional. Like, there's no professionalism with some of these influences. They go to events. They don't know anyone in the room. They walk in thinking that they're running shit because of whatever account. And it's a lot of these white privileged girls. Let me be very clear. It's a very white girl world, okay? The influencer space is predominantly white young girls that are like, coming from money that literally are trying to have a social life on someone else's dime that when they're not out schmoozing and getting daddy's Amex card, they're literally going and getting it from brands and groups and they want to act like they're doing something of substance. They don't know what's going on in the world. They're racially insensitive. They're racist as fuck. They have no cultural competence. They don't have social cues. They don't know how to read the room. They're terrible. They're terrible and they're terrible to work with. And these PR people think, oh, we have to put up with them because, you know, we want to get this view. I'm going to tell you PR, some, you PR people something. On behalf of journalists that do this work, on behalf of media people that do this work, please stop inviting all these fucking influencers because I'm about ready to be very selective about where I go. And so many journalists I know are feeling the same way. We're not the same. Don't put me next to somebody who don't know what the fuck tuna tartare is. They call it tuna tartee. Don't sit me next to some entitled white girl who's looking at me talking about who are you and what do you do as if she ain't never heard of me because she ain't never followed my TikTok account. I, it's happened to me. I had a white girl come to me one time and was like, recently, was like, oh, so what do you do? Excuse me? What do I do? Me? Listen. 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 The way it was asked, it wasn't a common, innocent question, right? Because let's be clear. I'm not a snob in that way where I'm like, Ugh. It was a, so what did you do? Like, like as if she was talking to me as if I was a peer. <laughs> I was, I, I told her to Google me. 
I said, oh, you know who I am? You should Google me, honey. And the next time she saw me at another event the next day, she was like, oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. I love your articles. I didn't know that was you. I didn't know you were that earnest. Oh my God. All of that. And became a fangirl instantly. But that's how it is. I mean, people out here looking at Patty Jackson, asking Patty Jackson, what does Patty Jackson do? Patty fucking Jackson. WDAS, a legend. We're going to these events trying to support the local businesses and these annoying ass influencers are looking at people like Patty Jackson and asking Patty Jackson, what does she do? We're not the same. So I don't know if we got to create a little playpen for some of these influencers or there need to be more selection, but it's eroding the business. It's eroding the business. And let's be also clear. Do you know how to interpret audience? Why are some of these influencers at events that are 21 and up when their followers are under 21? There's a really interesting story that happened lately where there was an influencer that went to a bar and promoted it or on their TikTok or whatever. And then a bunch of underage kids went to that same bar trying to drink Shirley Temples. It was wow. And so this is what it means by the influence is that your influence don't even match the spaces that you're in. That you think bringing all these people out is going to bring buzz. The kids can't go to that shit. Like, my audience is grown and sexy. Ain't nobody... I don't even think I have anyone under... Maybe a couple of college students that might follow me just because they want to read my articles. But there is no way that any underage kids would be following my account, looking at it and being like, oh, yes. Ernest had this, this duck the other day that I wanted to have. No, because that price range is not for kids that age, right? I know my following. But these, these, these PR people are just doing a horrible job now. They don't know the audience they have. They're bringing them out. These, listen, if this person, is, if 90% of this person's posts are promoting cheesesteak hoagies and donuts and shit like that, what makes you think that they're going to be promoting things that you put in, them in this fancy restaurant like a Volver or, or a place like that? And having them do tasting menus is going to allure to that audience. That's not the same audience. Like, that's not the same audience. My audience is grown and sexy and educated. Yeah, I got a couple of different folks in there. Working class people as well, right? They want to have a good time, right? Everybody is a, is a grown-up crowd. My audience is grown. My audience are people that like to have a good time. So, yeah, you put me at a restaurant. You put some of these other people there. You know, we know what to do. But also, we cover this shit. Like... People read, adults read food reviews. Adults read lists. Adults follow what the press is saying in addition to their own instinct. They're not looking at no little kids on TikTok. I've never heard anyone say, I saw this great fancy restaurant on TikTok and that made me want to go. No, I see them say, oh, there was that long line at Raising Cane's. Yes, the TikTokers go to Raising Cane's. Go to Long Line for Raising Cane's. Go, go there. Your audience is at, is at Raising Cane's. They're not at Volvere. They're, they're not at any of these top tier restaurants. And it's time for PR people and media people and folks to wake up and start looking at people like, listen, we're not the same. Like, you should not be in, in my space. Like, in, the, in the, some of the stuff they do to these restaurant owners, and I feel so bad for some of them, right? They go, they don't tip. Like, listen, I go to these events, yeah, I get comped, but I'm still tipping. I'm still tipping. 
Like the song, Still Tipping On. Anyway, that's a Houston classic. If you know the song, Still Tipping. Not that tipping. But I'm still fiscally tipping. And I am in love with, with you know, with, with the restaurant staff. Like, you tip those people. You give them gratuity. These people don't give tips. They come in. They think that they, you know, their presence is charity. They come in. They they see these these dancers, these performers. They 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 feel entitled. I remember going to a drag brunch event, and I saw a bunch of people there that they understand that the dancers to be tipped. They didn't understand that the dancers. If you go to a drag show, these are these are grown ass professionals. They go. They didn't know anything about a drag show. They go and they don't got no coins for the girls. You gotta have dollars. You gotta have some some bills. You gotta have money. You gotta have come with some stacks. You gotta have some money. If you got no money for the girls, what the what? It's wild. It's wild. It is wild. I've seen it with my own eyes. They don't have any stacks for the girls. They be coming up in there with no money for the girls. Just saying. Just saying. So, influencers, just get together. Just get together. Just be better people. Just be better people. Tip people. Be respectful. Read the room. Get out of your privilege. Get real. And get with the times. Or, you know, it's going to get to a point where, I mean, people like myself and others will look at you like and lose that patience and just be like, because there's been some situations, I must say. I must say. So, lastly, we're about to enter Pride Month. Let's get this out the way. <laughs> Let's get this out the way. I'm telling y'all this up front because this month is about to be a lot. Good, messy, and in between. Let me just say this. It's Pride Month. Okay, it's coming up. It's going to be here. We're days away. Straight people, behave. Behave. Behave yourselves. Cishead people, behave yourselves. Don't show your ass. Please don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I should have told y'all this for, for Black Kissy Month. Please, please, please. Leave your gay friends alone. Leave, your, leave them alone. Leave us alone. Just don't do the most. Please, it's, it's, it's our month. Support the causes, but please leave us alone. I can't tell you how often when Pride Month happened, the straights be cutting up. Some of them, overperformative, super extra, doing the most. Listen, listen. Support the girls. Tax, tip, support nonprofits locally, but leave us alone. <laughs> like, I, I just, because any, any gay person knows this. Any queer person knows this. When, we, when, we, when Pride Month happens, I, I, at least where I'm at, I get overabundance of cishet people that just do the most. Please, please, if you want to go to a pride parade, do you, baby? But I don't want to go with you. I don't. I really want to make my, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, there's going to be some pride celebrations. I'm going to be going with a couple of my friends, some of which are cishet, of course. But some stuff I just want to do with my people. I just want to be gay with gay people. I just want to be with my queer folks. So sometimes a little segregation uh, uh, is, is helpful. I, I want to. I, I don't want to necessarily do everything. I don't want to be your your gay tour guide this Pride Month. I don't want to go to gay bars with you. I want to be with other gay people. People see 
you know, Josh, George, Jamarcus, and I, we have our, our, our Lit Brothers event, and they say, they tease and say, oh, y'all always have it. I wish I could come. No, it's not for you. It's for black, gay, queer men like us. We we like to do what we do. Sometimes the girls in Sex in the City just want to be sex in the city with each other. They just want to have their own groups and gatherings. Sometimes they just want to be together. And it's not, everything is not for everybody. We talked about that earlier in the podcast. I just want y'all to understand that. I really want my pride to be super, super gay. And I mean it by, I really just want to be around gay people. And, and, and mostly black queer people. I just want to be around my people. And, and, and some of my friends who get it. I don't want to be like, don't be like, oh, this is pride event. Come with me to it. No, I don't want to go with you. I'm telling you in advance. Unless you're paying me to go. <laughs> but I'm not going. I'm not going. Don't ask me. Don't invite me. Don't. Unless I'm being honored. Now, if you say, oh, Ernest, we're going to honor you at this pride event. What? Me being honored? Yes. But other than that, I'm not going. I'm not doing it. You you know, send the girls some money for a happy hour. Send the gays some money. How about that? Give your gay friends money to go to happy hour. Give your gay friends invitations to stuff. Pay for, support the gays <laughs> by leaving them alone. <laughs> Unless you've been sent. Unless you've been invited. Unless someone said, you straight person, you cis hair person, you're invited to come with me for this incredible time. Unless you've been invited, we're not doing it the other way. I am not going to a gay bar with you. I'm not. I will not be that for you. If you want to go and do your thing, leave, leave the gays alone for Pride Month. Seriously. Seriously. Leave us alone. Because I'm telling you, last year was a shit show. I can tell you how many people was like, oh, I saw this gay event. I was thinking of you. Let's go together. No, I don't want to do a drag brunch with you. No. If I want to do that, I'm going to do it with my bestie. Like, I did drag brunches and shit last year, but that was Jamarcus and I. It was the girls. I don't want to be with the, I don't want to be with this person. I don't want to be with this person doing it. I just don't. I don't. I don't. No. <laughs> don't want to do it and there are some people that do right and you know listen go with them but seriously I think what I've been really realizing in you know I want to say for the past two years is that there is something about being in spaces affinity spaces with your people you have to there is something about being black and being in some spaces with black excellence. I thought about that with the PABJ Me Professional Award that just happened a week ago. That it was just something to be said that that room was, was, was black and we were celebrating black excellence and we felt good and at home. And so many people came to me and told me, you know, I really like that I get to be in those spaces where I can feel comfortable and I could just be. And, 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 and there's just something about that experience that feels good because unfortunately, a lot of, you know, queer people are oftentimes in spaces where we're always got the cishet gaze. You notice that pattern? You get that supremacy? You see there's a pattern here, y'all. Um, where we're always having to be on on par. And I like to escape that sometimes. I need to. Like, I wish that I could do it all the time, to be honest. But it, it's important to have that. Because there's times where I could be relaxed in a way that I can't when I'm in the public eye. Like a lot of us are, right? We're we're always doing that. I mean, for me, I like that I, I'm a, I work for myself, right? So I don't have to do it with coworkers. But when I think about my black friends, uh, my other black friends and folks that, that don't have the luxury to do what I do, right? 
they have white coworkers, they have straight coworkers, they deal with people that oftentimes they are always on the brink. It is important to get away from that and be with people. And Pride Month is a time for me to be super queer and to be in that in that space with my people and just but the people that I've chosen to be with. It's not for you to use it as opportunity to, to love on me. That's great. You can virtual signal another time. I just need to be, you know, some of us just want to be. So, you know, like this ain't about you. It ain't about you, boo. You know, people got to tell some of these people that because they do that a lot. They do that. They do that thing where low key, it's, it's you too. Like they want to go to the stuff, but they need an experience. That's, that's great. But this month's not my responsibility. I'm not that gay friend. I'm not that gay friend. And I'm not that black friend either for some. Like we, sometimes we want that space. Sometimes we'll invite you and sometimes we don't. And that's okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's not personal at all. It's just having those spaces sometimes because we are in a fucked up world. I mean, Buffalo, I'm still I'm still thinking about Buffalo. I know some of y'all have forgotten about Buffalo because of what happened in Texas last week, and I get it. But I'm still thinking about Buffalo. I'm still thinking about grandchildren who will never see their grandparents again. I'm thinking about those families and how that White supremacy was intentional. You know? I think about this. As I get to Pride Month 2, you know, the fifth anniversary of the black and brown flag will will be talked about. You know, this black and brown Philadelphia Pride flag, you know, the one that I helped inspire with, you know, the work I did covering Gabriel Racism that was inspired by the work of people like, you know, Abdul Ali Muhammad, um, like them, like the Black and Brown Workers Collective, which is now the Black and Brown Workers Cooperative, and other Black queer activists that were at those at the front lines, those people, right? That moment, right? There are going to be people like Amber Hikes, which you all heard of. She's no longer in Philly, I don't believe, but there are going to be people like her that's going to do her revisionist shit again. But I will encourage you to go back to an episode I did in June of twenty twenty one, which was last season. Season well, season one, when I talked about that flag in the history, I'm not going to retell that story, but you can go back and listen to it. It's it's about pride. It's the pride episode I did. It's back in June. Uh, that episode um, was was fierce, and it was it was a moment. It was a conversation that needed to be had. And I just know that a lot of people are going to you know pop up and try to retell that story, and I'm going to look at them and like, what the fuck are you talking about? That was not how that happened. And honestly, you know, sometimes you just got to remind the girls, but it is definitely going to be a conversation that needs to be had. Um, we are in the fifth. We really are in the fifth month of uh, reviews, which is wild. Um, I just started thinking about that lately, like we are. Um, also, too, for people who do listen to the podcast religiously, um, if you have not done a review of the show, please do the review. I have 109 ratings. Please keep doing reviews. Please. 109 people have done reviews for the podcast, which I'm very grateful for. But keep doing them because they do help boost the ratings and also gets, get people to know about it. So I would encourage people, please, please, please uh, do the ratings. Um, a lot of, most of them are five-star reviews, which I love. Thank you. Many of them are five-star reviews. Um, 
yeah, I'm looking now, like every mostly five star reviews. Um, yeah, I'm looking now, nothing but five stars across the board. Um, and there's a couple of ones that aren't, uh, but of course, those are like the, 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 you know, some of the far right people that come on and slide in. But yes, I'm super excited. Um, let me see something. I want to tell you all the exact episode number of that podcast because I know some people will be asking and I want to I want to have the correct episode where we talked about that history because it was a history. Um, but yeah, um, it's been it's it's been it's been a great time. Um, oh, I just saw this other episode that was hilarious. I'm going back to memory lane. Oh, yes. We were talking about around this time. We were talking about Steak 48. Isn't that crazy, y'all? We were talking about Steak 48. And now look what we're talking about. So I'm looking at the episodes. I think it is. Ooh. I think it is a June 24th episode. Yeah, I think it's a June 24th episode. Um, it could be different, but I think that's what it is. Yeah, June, June 24th episode, which is, hold on. I did so many, I've done so many episodes, y'all. I, okay, so it, oh, wait, actually it's the June 4th episode. So it was about a year ago. It is June 4th, 2021 Episode season one, episode twenty-two, Pride Drama, Naomi Osaka, Bonnets, and Why Darius Cooks Ain't It. So I talk about the real history of the black and brown stripes on the Pride flag. Yep, that was the June 4th episode. So if you are a podcast listener, of course, to my show, love my show, or whatever, go to episode 22 of season one. Episode 22 of season one. That's when I talk about all of the madness with the pride flag, the black and brown stripes. Go back and watch it. Nothing I said in that podcast episode isn't anything different from what I would say about it today. It's the same feelings. It's the same thoughts. And before we get into Pride Month and we start talking about that flag again, go back and watch, listen to episode 22 of season one. It was, I talk all about it in full depth. No, I name names. I talk about the ifs, the buts, but go back to that episode, episode 22 of season one, because I really talk about it. And I am honestly, it's been five years and, you know, I don't know if the history has changed. I don't know if people get it now. I don't know if folks are still saying whatever, but I was important for me to do that episode last year because it was just way too much erasure and a bunch of revisionist history. And that's why I love doing this podcast because I get a chance to do oral history here. Like I get to do retellings. I get to 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 talk about it in the time being to relate, re, you know, remember it because you know there'll be many years from now where we'll go back and people will want to know this, that, and the third, and names will fade and and events will change and offices will go different and change and we got to remember where we were at that time. So please, 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 if you want to know what happened with that flag and the true history of it, it is episode twenty two of season one. Yeah. But like I said before, until then, as always, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 
at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Ernestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com. <laughs>